Welcome back to PowerPlay. Throughout this season, we're bringing you stories about the power of music, the music of the powerful, music as a means to power, and what happens when music and power go head to head. I'm Ross. And I'm Carbo. Let's get to it. Across more than 90 years and thousands of miles, the magic of modern audio recording just brought you that piece from the 1928 Bayreuth Festival in southern Germany, a yearly celebration of the work of Richard Wagner. The recording's a bit fuzzy, but we'll trust the musicians got their notes right. <laughs> We're more interested, though, in the festival's conductor, a man named Karl Mach. What brought Mach to be the principal conductor of this music festival, and think Tanglewood and the Berkshires, not Coachella, though maybe with a 20s take on Coachella's attendance and enthusiasm. But anyway, it's, it's a long, thorny path that cuts across nations and cultural identities, with sweeping vistas of major historical phenomena like transatlantic immigration, vengeful rivalries between turn-of-the-century urban elites in the United States, and the burgeoning of the American classical music scene. And Karl Muck was pretty near the crossroads of all of that. Born in Germany in 1859, Muck got acquainted with classical music from the start, with a fanatic father pressing strict rehearsals for Muck's instruments of choice, the piano and violin. Muck's early life was something of a stiffed-back waltz between elite educational institutions in Germany and Switzerland, where the Muck family immigrated and established Swiss citizenship in 1867. Despite changing their nationality, the Mucks maintained an abiding affinity for German culture and history. So let's take a moment to look at some of that German history. <laughs> yeah, let's do. <laughs> uh, when the modern state of Germany unified in 1871 from what was something of a cobbled patchwork of geopolitical mayhem, national pride inflamed mythological whispers of a German past. With starry-eyed and exceptionalist myths of German greatness in mind, Germany in the fin de siècle, or the decades surrounding the year 1900, struggled to make sense of what was an extraordinarily disjointed and incoherent regional history. Throughout ancient and medieval times, German-speaking lands were fragmented, constantly at war with one another, and demographically reflective of the ethnic diversity of their place in the gray area between Eastern and Western Europe. An uptick in anti-Semitism was part of this nationalistic swell, particularly among German cultural and academic elites. Wagner in particular punctuated his work with the kind of hatred of the Jewish people and their cultural contributions that grew morbid in the late 19th century. Smitten with Wagner from an early age, Adolf Hitler would later claim that to understand Nazism, one must first know Wagner. And know him Hitler did. The heroes of Wagner's operas fit nicely within Hitler's imagined Germanic past. With their booming voices, raging masculinity, and German-speaking tongues, Wagner's characters thickly stained Hitler's mind with imagery of the supposed racial superiority of Germans. Throughout his political career, Hitler prized Wagner's work, even putting up a bust of the composer in his office. <laughs> That's quite a decoration. Uh, Hitler's obsession with cultural products and institutions stemmed from a childhood of rapture at paintings, sculptures, and musical compositions. But only those works that were, quote-unquote, pure enough. 
purity that, in Hitler's mind, entailed almost exclusively male artists and composers whose apparent ancestry did not include Jewish heritage. Wagner, to say the least, fit the bill. As much as Hitler adored Wagner, so did Karl Muck. Like Hitler, Muck thought German culture, especially German music, were marks of a superior race. Richard Wagner died in 1883, but both Muck and Hitler were close friends of the Wagners, who remained socially prominent throughout the turn of the century and during Hitler's rise to power. Given their loyalty to the notorious composer in the family, their affection for German music and their anti-Semitism were virulent. As their mutual friendship with the Wagners drew them closer in proximity, Muck and Hitler cultivated a lasting relationship. At thunderous concert halls and over countless social encounters, the two bolstered each other's fervent love for German music. Against the backdrop of despising Jewish people, excluding them from civil rights and careers in music, and persecuting them through violence and, eventually, genocide. The platonic love affair between Hitler and Mach was profound. In 1930, after working as the principal conductor for the Bayreuth Festival for more than 20 years, Muck resigned over disgust for a new set design for his beloved Parsifal and began conducting for the Hamburg Philharmonic, where he would continue putting on music from the German Romantic tradition. By 1933, when Hitler had seized substantial dictatorial power, Muck complied with the Nazis' bans on Jewish compositions and musicians. <laughs> preparing to attend a celebration at the Hamburg Philharmonic for the centennial of German composer Johannes Brahms's birth, noticed several Jewish musicians listed in the program of the event. A mortified Mach promptly fired the musicians. He was quick to vow to political pressure and glad to, in his mind, purify the orchestra. Over time, Muck held back less and less of his disdain for Jewishness, and his immense power in the institutions of German classical music gave him avenues for carrying out his hatred. Curiously, Muck resigned from the Hamburg Philharmonic after this Brahms concert. The Nazis' growing influence over his selections of music royally peeved Muck, and Muck was jealous of the conductor of the Hamburg Opera, which the Nazis had forcibly combined with the Philharmonic. At Muck's retirement party, though, Hitler announced that the square in front of the Philharmonic would be renamed the Karl Muck Plaza. Hitler's propaganda crony, Joseph Goebbels, would later have troops march in the square, right in front of the Philharmonic. Muck, in ill health and bitter over the messy end of his career, faded out of the German social fabric. Though Mach became something of a recluse, he was surely attuned to Hitler's terrorism against Jewish people throughout Germany, and witnessed the eventual beginning of the Second World War with Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939. But despite all of Hitler's actions, Karl Mach still hurried to Berlin in 1939 to receive the Eagle Shield, the equivalent of the American Presidential Medal of Freedom, from Hitler himself. Muck died in 1940, with the prospect of German victory an imminent possibility. Throughout the war, German SS officers used Muck as a code word to mean loyalty. Hitler would even name his dog Muck. 
The conductor's legacy in Nazi Germany was as a figurehead for Hitler's idealized German culture and an ambassador for the exclusion, deportation, oppression, and genocide of the Jewish people. But despite his clear role in at least tacitly supporting the Nazis' terrorism and genocide, Mach has a far more complicated history. Before the Eagle Shield, before the Bayreuth Festival and his exclusive practices, Mach himself faced persecution from elite, racially-minded powers. This round of prejudice, however, was not in the concert halls of Nazi Germany, but rather the upper echelons of New York City. Wait, wait, we're about to transition right from the Nazis to the Upper East Side, New York? Yep. And just to give you an idea of what we're headed for, you might not hold Teddy Roosevelt in such rosy regard once we're through. Yeah, but does anyone hold Teddy Roosevelt in full rosy regard anymore? I feel like he's one of those uh, mixed figures who you know is just too good to be true. Yeah, that's probably fair. But first, before we tackle Teddy Roosevelt and his ritzy pals on Park Avenue, let's go back to the beginning to get some more perspective. So, Mach was born in Germany in 1859 and moved to Switzerland in 1870, interestingly just before Germany's unification in 1871. The Mucks got Swiss citizenship, which Karl Muck would retain for the rest of his life. From an early age, crossing borders and having rights in new nations were second nature for Muck. And despite his Swiss nationality on paper, Muck kept himself pretty close to Germany, as he went through schools and universities in Germany and landed conducting gigs at top-tier German, Swiss, and Austrian concert halls. Within the first few decades of his career, Muck had flicked his wrists and waved his batons on stages from Leipzig to Berlin and Salzburg to Zurich, even traveling as far as St. Petersburg in Russia to conduct Wagner's epic drama The Ring Cycle to sold-out audiences. By 1888, Muck had become the court-favorite composer of the newly enthroned Kaiser Wilhelm II. Muck would keep a picture of the Kaiser on his piano for many years, in 1903, Mach took his position as principal conductor at the Bayreuth Festival. But as Mach became more famous, gaining considerable international renown, wealthy, musically-minded American elites took notice and desperately wanted the composer to set sail for the States, where Mach would be able to gain more prominence than he could in the crowded field of expert conductors that already populated Europe. Efforts to persuade Mach to come to the United States began with a Boston Brahmin named Henry Lee Higginson. The Brahmins were the aristocratic backbone of Boston for hundreds of years. Most of these Brahmins established their aristocratic status by claiming ancestral links to the English Puritans who crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower, which of course makes them special and worthy of immense generational wealth <laughs> acquired through stealing land and monopolizing trade. When your great-great-great-greats take native people's lands, build a patriarchal religious community on top of it, and concentrate your wealth in the hands of a few lucky people over hundreds of years, that's just so great, but really not so much. And Henry Higginson was a top-notch Brahmin, contradictions and all. The Brahmin class, with its flashy names and Victorian mansions, looked nothing like their Puritan ancestors. Brahmins like Higginson associated themselves with the Puritans' morality by making heaping philanthropic contributions to the city, most of which were directed towards highbrow cultural institutions, like art museums and concert halls. So the Brahmins, 
trying to connect with their Puritan past, built themselves fancy playhouses. Essentially? Um, but we shouldn't make the Gilded Age too much of a Gilded Age. Uh, most of these cultural institutions, like for instance the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum, survive today, and have been open to the public for a long time. And the Brahmins also built, you know, some nice hospitals and other stuff like that. Still, the money the Brahmins wielded was rooted in the capitalist system that had ballooned their pockets through holding the reins of trade and manufacturing, with their economic bonds to American slavery, Western colonialism, exploitation of new laboring classes, and banks that shored up their wealth and status. Even the name Brahmin is actually a part of this exploitative system, since it derives from Oliver Wendell Holmes's novel Elsie Venner, A Romance of Destiny, in which Holmes compares New England's elite to the Hindu Brahmins of India, who dispense moral advice. <laughs> Classic. Of course the name was culturally appropriated. Anyway, Concert halls sat at the convergence of these economic and political forces, taking in large sweeps of modern Western history and culture, all due to the generous hearts of urban American elites. Ah, uh, philanthropy. Enmeshing money with culture and politics since basically forever. And what would classical music be without heaps of elitist money going toward lavish concert halls while underpaying musicians? Higginson was certainly up that alley. As cultural institutions go, the concert hall, as a bastion for imported European high culture, was Higginson's philanthropic arm of choice. In 1881, Higginson banded together with a slew of other American elites and European contacts to form the Boston Symphony Orchestra, one of the first major polished and professional orchestras in the United States. Before the 1870s and 80s, classical music was little known in the United States except for traveling bands of musicians and small exclusive concerts in major cities and universities. Relationships between New England elites and European classical musicians, composers, and conductors were crucial in the eventual development of American classical music in urban centers like Boston and New York City. A young Higginson had spent years in Germany, marveling at the glossy stature of classical music and German culture. Himself an accomplished pianist, Higginson built relationships with countless German and Austrian musicians, composers, and conductors. Higginson would use every bit of this German influence in fashioning the Boston Symphony Orchestra and its home, Boston Symphony Hall, built in the style of a German concert hall. Though a bit more ornate than the Spartan interior of Wagner's concert hall at Bayreuth, Boston Symphony Hall was an architectural distillation of German and more widely European styles in Higginson's American imagination. Curvaceous plaster sculptures reached off the balconies, and Beethoven's name sat emblazoned in gold gilt over the stage. The Germans had always been at the center of American classical music up to this point. With Bach's legacy and Beethoven's and Mozart's influence in a not-too-distant past, American patrons of classical music imported Germans to play and conduct German music in their concert halls. After having established the orchestra and chiseled up his musical edifice, Higginson sought a revered German conductor to bring the BSO out of its mediocrity. Well, mediocre at least relative to European orchestras. And Higginson found that in Karl Muck. In 1906, Higginson wrote to the Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge and President Theodore Roosevelt, who both happened to be Higginson's cousins. 
He asked them to persuade Kaiser Wilhelm II to pressure Muck into leaving his conducting career in Germany and Austria to come to join the BSO. Roosevelt, skilled negotiator and diplomat that he was, won over the Kaiser and Muck within weeks. In the diplomatic climate of the very early 20th century, this exchange was a high note in the political relationship between Germany and the United States, perhaps a note that contributed in some small way to keeping the United States out of the First World War for so long. Over the course of the preceding century, German immigrants crossed the Atlantic and built neighborhoods and communities all over the United States. Between the 1820s and 1870s, over 7 million Germans immigrated to the United States. Boston, in particular, had a thriving German-American community. Many of the traditions of the Christmas holiday that persist in the United States to this day, the decoration of evergreen trees in one's home, for example, stem largely from the practices of German-American immigrants. German immigrants who didn't identify as Jewish, however, found an all-important commonality with many Bostonians of the time, anti-Semitism. German-Americans integrated into the American social fabric in no small part because of their abiding, transnational disdain for the Jewish people. Henry Higginson was no exception, and neither, of course, was Karl Muck. Their shared anti-Semitism was at least part of the glue that held their professional and private relationships together. Once Muck got acquainted with his new city and orchestra, the illustrious conductor took full command of the BSO, with an increasing air of autonomy over who would get to play in his orchestra and whose music they would perform. More than once, Muck found himself in the awkward situation of finding out that one of his musicians was Jewish, and in these cases, given that he had selected them for their talent, Muck would begrudgingly keep them. But when it came to music, Muck was clearly partial to German composers, and especially to those that just so happened to not be Jewish. Too bad for Felix Mendelssohn, but really it was worse for Muck and his American audiences, who missed out on a large body of work out of sheer prejudice. Soon, however, the tables would turn on Muck. With the onset of World War I, German-Americans came under increasing scrutiny and faced violent persecution. Even though the United States was officially neutral under President Woodrow Wilson, most Americans supported the Triple Entente, the military alliance between the United Kingdom, France, and Russia that fought against Germany and Austria-Hungary. And as the war lengthened and intensified, many Americans became less and less fond of German-Americans and their cultural status. All the way from Beethoven symphonies to hamburger meat, whose name was changed to Salisbury Steak, most of American culture and its elite financiers turned their backs on anything associated with Germany. But German-American immigrants weren't so eager to abandon their cultural heritage, and they faced increasingly dramatic persecution for sticking to their language and traditions. In what became something of a wartime hysteria, xenophobic activities proliferated across the United States. Americans sought doggedly to define what the word American really meant and they found their answer in claiming that only those people born within the borders of the United States could truly claim American status. This ideology was called nativism, and it was a key force in the immigration debates of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Nativist approaches to immigration weren't born out of the war, though. 
for many decades and even centuries before the war. Being native-born was a prized but racist and alienating status. Having been born within American borders was a privilege whose benefits almost exclusively extended to white, male, property-owning, and wealth-laden citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, sure, on the one hand, you can say that by the time of the First World War, every male born in the United States was at least constitutionally a citizen. But on the other hand, men of color and most poor men were left out of the prerogatives that being native-born connoted. Still, almost all men of color were kept out of voting booths, and many were victims of persistent white terrorism. And that's not even considering that almost all women lacked legal and political privileges, no matter their place of birth. The U.S. Constitution itself has a nativist bent, since it mandates that any American president must have been born in the United States. In concert with all the other legal bonds that kept everyone else out of positions of power, this constitutional rule guaranteed the political primacy of the wealthy, native-born, white male. A legacy that still rings true today. So this is where Teddy Roosevelt drops in. As we've already mentioned, Teddy played a main part in the diplomatic wrangling that got Muck across the Atlantic. Keep that in mind. The fact that Roosevelt adamantly pursued an act of immigration as president in the years surrounding the turn of the century, Roosevelt campaigned against the nativist Know-Nothing Party, witnessed streams of migrants enter the United States from all over Europe, and maintained an unprecedented presence on the global stage, spending months at a time traveling the world throughout his terms in office. So you'd think Roosevelt must have been keen on internationalism then, right? Well, up to a point. Roosevelt paraded himself around Europe and Africa, demonstrating his personal prowess and affinities for hunting and diplomacy. But when he returned to the United States, Roosevelt retained membership of a group of elite vigilantes called the American Defense Society, the New York chapter of which included scores of other influential elites like John D. Rockefeller and William Guggenheim. Groups like the Nativist American Defense Society were the meeting grounds of American elites, mingling together powerful politicians with wealthy socialites. And perhaps no one embodied the New York socialite at the turn of the century, more than Lucy Jay. Jay had married into one of the most prominent families in New York history, connecting her to founding father John Jay, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers and the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Despite her own German parents, Lucy Jay relished her husband's English ancestry. Jay was, to say the least, a very prominent force in New York culture and politics. She consistently authored editorials in newspapers like the New York Times and the New York Tribune that gave her a platform to direct the public's attention to her concerns and the plans of the city's highest ruling echelon. As much as Jay utilized New York newspapers as a podium, she also wielded them as weaponry, launching written assaults against her personal enemies. But Jay, like other quasi-aristocrats at the time, was primarily invested in advancing her city's cultural institutions. For Jay, having a fabulous orchestra or art museum wasn't enough. New York's halls of high culture had simply to be the best. In her drive for New York's cultural supremacy, Jay would take no prisoners, until she actually did take prisoners, or at least 
facilitated some imprisonment. <laughs> but we'll get to that shortly. Yeah, that's a very fine distinction to make there. Of but course. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that like citizens of other Western nations around the turn of the century, Jay bought into the feverish patriotism of the pre-World War I years. Across Europe, the largest and smallest of nations were building up unprecedentedly massive national militaries, flexing their cannonry and feather-adorned helmets in great pomp at parades throughout their nations. The case wasn't quite the same in the United States, but the Americans were well on their way. With Teddy Roosevelt's recent diplomatic forays, the enormity of the American economy, and the undeniable reality of transatlantic immigration, the United States was having something of a debutante ball to the world. Or at least a clunky meet-and-greet with some Western European nations. <laughs> with the onset of the First World War, this American debut got a lot more complicated. Uncle Sam got a little shy in his dress and heels and decided to retreat back up the staircase for a while. As Europe entered total war, with extensive forced help from its colonies, President Wilson won re-election in 1916, by promising to keep the country out of the war. Less than a year into his second term, alarmed by a potential alliance between Germany and Mexico, Wilson pushed Uncle Sam crashing back down the debutante staircase. But Uncle Sam had traded his tiara and heels for a gas mask. That's, a, that's quite an outfit and quite an image. <laughs> um, but really, even before Wilson broke his promise of neutrality, Americans were far from neutral. Anti-German rhetoric and policy fanned the flames of American xenophobia well before the United States officially declared war, and powerful figures like Lucy Jay were some of the most xenophobic. Despite her recent German ancestry, Jay waged her own sort of war against German Americans, and particularly went after Karl Muck. Even as the war picked up steam, Muck kept conducting away at Boston Symphony Hall, Having lived and worked in the United States for more than a decade, Muck's reputation had enjoyed celebrity-like success in the States. Newspaper reviews positively raved at his ability to conjure up such immense orchestrated magic from whichever stage he occupied. By the teenage years of the 20th century, Muck had become the darling of New England classical music, traveling across the region to jam-packed performances. Despite these celebrity cameos, Muck was unwaveringly loyal to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, whose musicians and concert hall had gained the most premier status of any orchestra in the United States. As one might imagine, Lucy Jay did not take kindly to the BSO's renown. The supremacy of Boston's orchestra made Jay's beloved New York Philharmonic, and in close extension, its philanthropists, look almost second class uh, by comparison. And given Karl Muck's celebrity and unimpeachable mastery, Jay decided to take things down a, shall we say, less than professional path. As she was wont to do, Jay picked up her pen and paper, got in touch with her contacts at New York newspapers, and waged her own total war against Karl Muck. And we're not kidding too much when we say that Lucy Jay's campaign against Muck was something of a total war. In her quest to destroy Muck in the BSO, Jay would rage against German music more broadly, writing in the New York Herald that, just as we of the Allies use poisonous gases to meet our savage foe, so must we regretfully retaliate and suppress the works of her composers. Beyond this editorial in 1917, the New York Herald, which Jay's husband owned and which had extensive ties to the New York Philharmonic, 
had published many of her xenophobic arguments before, and would continue to print her frequent and explosive rants against Muck. Yeah, when Muck and the BSO were invited to perform at Carnegie Hall in 1918, the prospect was more than Jay could put up with. In a matter of days, Jay wrote several editorials railing against the decision and calling Muck the Kaiser's director. And this is where Jay's campaign really started to get the public's, and more importantly, the government's, attention. Several patriotic New Yorkers even considered tearing down Carnegie Hall during the concert, and the revived memory of another, even more controversial event only stoked the hysteria. A year before the concert at Carnegie Hall, which was, by the way, a smash hit among the more open-minded New Yorkers who actually attended the concert, Muck and the BSO had gotten on a train for Providence, Rhode Island, where they were set to perform at Infantry Hall. A very fittingly named hall, but <laughs> right before the concert, the BSO's management received a request from a host of Providence companies and clubs asking that the orchestra perform the Star-Spangled Banner during the concert. With any conductor, but especially given Muck's fastidiousness, this request would have been an unwelcome last-minute alteration to an already well-established concert program. And setting the program was one of any conductor's foremost honors. Deciding which music to conduct and when was the central prerogative of the conductor. And so, in respect for Muck and that prerogative, as well as having a distaste for such kind of plebeian music, <laughs> Henry Higginson declined the request, and the concert went on as planned. The day of the concert, John Ratham, the editor of the Providence Journal newspaper and a prominent anti-German xenophobe, scorned the upcoming concert for its exclusively German character. In the days following the concert, Ratham fabricated a story about Muck's alleged refusal to play the Star-Spangled Banner on political grounds. Alright, two things to keep in mind. First, Higginson was the one who refused to allow the piece to be played, and second, the Star-Spangled Banner wasn't even the national anthem at this point. Yeah, that's right. The lyrics and tune of the anthem, which evolved significantly between 1917 and its eventual adoption in 1931, are ironic in themselves. For Ratham and so many other Americans, the song represented American patriotism and resistance against Germany during the war. But the subject of the lyrics is a battle against the British around a hundred years earlier. And besides, Muck actually did agree to play the Star-Spangled Banner at most of his later concerts, but none of that nuance mattered in the end. Lucy J. and other prominent New Yorkers, including those in the American Defense Society, of which Teddy Roosevelt had been an acting president, began calling for Muck to be interned, like thousands of other German-Americans suspected of anti-government activity, or feeling. Among other laws of his, President Wilson's Sedition Act of 1918 strangled civil liberties, threatening imprisonment for speaking out against the U.S. government during the war. Given these laws and Jay's insistence that Muck despised America, the Department of Justice conducted two separate investigations into Muck in 1917 and 1918, in which the department found nothing objectionable. But several days after the concert at Carnegie Hall, federal authorities arrested Muck without a formal charge against him. The federal government justified their arrest by using the vague legal language of the newly minted wartime laws. 
Attorney General Thomas Gregory claimed that, quote, Muck's presence at large was a danger to the public peace and safety to the United States, end quote. Muck was then formally charged with being an enemy alien, or non-citizen, who actively worked to undermine the government, and was sentenced to internment at a camp in the state of Georgia. Just three days after the Justice Department released its statement, Lucy J. resigned from the board of the New York Philharmonic, but not out of shame or guilt. She had just gotten the job done. Without Muck, the Boston Symphony Orchestra slid in prestige, and the New York Philharmonic quickly took its place at the top. The functional reason for Muck's arrest was a bit more complex, including blackmailing Muck over the release of sexually intimate letters between himself and a woman named Rosamund Young. But the final charge was based on a prolonged series of lies and rumors in American newspapers. And the recklessly vague and permissive language of wartime laws put immense political and legal authority in the hands and mouths of those with influence over the press. With the full force of New York elites and the Justice Department against him, Muck didn't stand a chance. Muck's internment at Fort Oglethorpe in Georgia certainly wasn't pleasant, but as government internment goes, Muck's was a more privileged experience. Despite the raging heat in summer and the intrusion of all kinds of insects and snakes into their quarters, the German-Americans interned at Fort Oglethorpe still received most of their basic necessities and even some luxuries. In a striking act of protest, however, Muck would put together and conduct a group of musicians at the camp, all of them fully nude. Even though these internees were more comfortable than some other prisoners during the war, the psychological effects of incarceration traumatized these men, many of whom would live out their lives with mood disorders, anxiety, and suicidal tendencies. Upon his release from Fort Oglethorpe in 1919, after almost a year and a half of imprisonment, Muck found himself unmoored in the United States. To most, his name had completely lost its luster. Longtime friends and neighbors in Boston refused to associate themselves with him. And under another of President Wilson's laws, the Trading with the Enemies Act, the federal government stole Muck's house and most of his personal assets, leaving him almost destitute. Muck did fight back suing the government for his property, but he wouldn't be even partly compensated until 1928. And anti-German sentiment only worsened in the aftermath of the war, and fears set in of retaliation by German-Americans. Another Wilson law, the Alien Anarchist Act, gave the government license to deport any foreign national whose very thoughts betrayed a distaste for America. Muck was a prime suspect under this new law, and the federal government dogged him for a year and a half in efforts to scrounge up enough of a case to deport him. Muck pled with Assistant Secretary of Labor Lewis Post to remain in the United States. As he had indicated on forms before his release from Oglethorpe, Muck had no desire to go to Germany. Despite Muck's abiding desire to remain in the United States, even considering his dramatic persecution, Post rejected Muck's request and recommended Muck's deportation. In August of 1919, Karl Muck and his wife Anita were carted to New York, where they were forced onto a ship headed for Sweden. So desperate was Muck to stay in the United States that federal agents stuck around on the ship to make sure Muck didn't jump off and swim back. An anguished and disoriented Muck was reported to have said on the ship, quote, I am not a German, despite the fact they said I was. I consider myself an American, but... See what America has done to me. I am a man without a flag 
for a country. But Muck's future did seem to hold a flag and a country for him, just not one he could envision at the time of his deportation. The tragic irony of Muck's story is that future itself. Muck, having been lied about, imprisoned, stolen from, and deported by a hostile government, was willing to play along with Hitler's rise to power. Perhaps Muck's experiences in the United States, a land supposedly freer and more just than any other, informed his casually accepting outlook on Nazi Germany. If America could oppress and deport its perceived enemies, why couldn't Germany? In this way, Muck's trials in the United States were something of a direct affirmation of state-sponsored discrimination and oppression. Hitler surely knew what had happened to Muck during his time in the United States, and the American government's active persecution of German Americans likely angered Hitler and gave him reason to replicate and expand upon that kind of terrorism against Jewish people, queer people, Roma, and other groups Hitler deemed enemies of the state. Like Lucy J. too, Hitler and his political allies harnessed the power of the media to spread lies and rumors about Jewish people. And just to be clear, we're not insinuating that what happened to Muck and other German-Americans in the United States directly led to the Nazis' oppression and genocide of millions of people. But the events surrounding Muck were at least a helpful textbook, if not a full-fledged prequel, to successive incarceration and oppression across the world. And that legacy extends all the way to today, with the currently active detention camps for migrants who've crossed the southern border of the United States. If you'd like to know more about Muck, Lucy J, and their influences on politics, we recommend Melissa Burridge's The Karl Muck Scandal, Xenophobia and Classical Music in World War I. Yeah, it's a bit of an academic text, but it includes a lot more detail that we couldn't address here and a lot more context for this story. Thank you for listening to Powerplay. I'm Ross, and Carbo is my illustrious co-host, as well as the creator and editor of Powerplay. This episode was researched by myself and produced by Tamberly Ferguson. Thank you to Josh Sacco for audio engineering and indispensability. The music you heard today was the prelude to Act One of Richard Wagner's Parsifal, conducted by Karl Muck in 1927. The Ride of the Valkyries by Richard Wagner. The Hungarian Dance Number no. Six by Johannes Brahms, conducted by Ivan Fischer. The Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. Two by Franz Liszt. The Meistersinger von Nuremberg by Richard Wagner, performed by Benjamin Intertalia. Symphony Number no. Three by Ludwig van Beethoven. Swan Lake by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Water music from The Handel Show, performed by the U.S. Army Old Guard Fife and Drums Corps. The Star Spangled Banner by the U.S. Marine Corps Band. And Symphony No. 3 by Felix Mendelssohn, conducted by Simon Schindler. Power Play is presented by WDAV Classical Public Radio. If you like what you heard, you can find more information on this episode and other great programming at wdav.org slash subscribe. <laughs>